Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello. Welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on paying back generous family members, firmly defining dietary restrictions when attending parties, using best regards when corresponding with strangers, and adequately thanking your host for giving up their bed. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, our question of the week is about people who borrow things and don't put them back where they belong. Plus your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript on Etiquette Kindergarten. All that coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Pooja Gupta Senning. And I'm Dan Post Senning. And it is so good to have you on the show. <laughs> this is kind of, this is, you know, so many things. I'm a little nervous. I'm excited. Me too. I'm, Me too. <laughs> and I'm happy that Lizzie, so Lizzie is on a vacation, which is why I'm here. And um, I'm happy for her. I'm happy for her to get to get away and to to be having some time off of work. As mm. much as it is fun to put on a podcast, it is also work for her. Well, let me interrupt you with a third me too, because I um, I also share that sentiment with you. Um, should we should we tell our awesome etiquette audience those who weren't here two years ago when you did your last co-hosting who the mystery woman with the same last name as me is on the on the mic today? Oh, of course. Oh, sorry. Okay, friends. I am Dan's wife. I'm Dan's wife and I'm and I'm here co-hosting. I'm upstairs in the house and he's downstairs in the house to keep all of our mics and sound reverb and all those things happening smoothly. But I'm reporting to you as his wife, as psychotherapist and hopefully etiquette quotes expert. I would not say I'm an expert, but I will do my best to try to give you a little bit something different. And just let you get to know me a little bit. Well, Pooch, I am uh, so grateful that you were willing to be on the show today. And I am also a little bit nervous. You and I are so close. You're one of my favorite people in the whole world. And we don't work professionally together very much. So it's sort of mm -hmm. interesting for us to cross streams like this. And I know you've co-hosted before with Lizzie a couple of times, I think. And mm -hmm. I've done this show with other co-hosts, but this is the first time you and I have tested ourselves in this particular way. No. Is it really? We have never done just me and you together on this I think we've been here before, but we had Lizzie asking us questions, and that was that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. This is the first time. Oh, that is cool. Well, there you have it, everybody. It's you're it's you're getting a little inner glimpse into us two together, but on, on in this format. We hope you enjoy. Well, and I've already failed one etiquette test. I asked you to introduce yourself. I mean, as the the host of the show, I should probably have had an introduction prepared. That, that oh, really... pishposh! It's all good. It's all good. Everyone's in for the ride, and and now they know who I am. A little informality never hurt anybody. Well, in that spirit, we do have some listener questions to get to. Should we take a listen to some questions and maybe try to offer some advice to the awesome etiquette audience? Why not? Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. Or reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst, I-N-S-T. 
On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. On Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media post so we know you want your question on the show. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question this week is about family finances. Hi, Lizzie and Dan, or in this case, Pooja and Dan. First off, thank you so much for what you do. I have listened to your podcast for years and love every episode. I recently introduced it to my little brother, a high schooler, and he is addicted as well. My husband is one of a very large family. He has eight siblings. They are all very generous and love to get each other nice birthday and Christmas gifts. However, my husband and I are both in graduate school, and our budget does not allow for buying lots of really nice presents. For a little while, we tried to get smaller, very thoughtful gifts, but even this is adding up to more than we feel comfortable paying. How do we tell his siblings that we are unable to participate at this level of giving? Since we can't buy 16-plus gifts a year, how do we tell them we don't expect gifts? I hate for them to feel like we are using them and not returning the favor. All the best budgeting student. Very thoughtful question, budgeting student. It makes so much sense that you're feeling a bit awkward, potentially preemptively feeling guilty for these awesome family members giving you pretty expensive gifts and not feeling and not being able to give in kind. And at the same time, you do want to participate and you clearly intend to um, express your love to them. So it sounds like it's a question of how to do that well. Dan, what would your tips be in terms of the etiquette realm when this is a a sensitive kind of question? And it's also a big change in in terms of this tradition that they're they're taking on. It really is. And in some ways, I, I can't start this question without channeling Lizzie Post just a little bit. Because she has some gift-giving advice that she loves to offer up, which is about the the assumption that many people have that gift-giving has to be reciprocal. And it, it doesn't necessarily. The idea when you give someone a gift isn't that you're going to get something of equal value in return. The idea is that you're you're thoughtfully giving something to someone because you care about them and you think they would like and appreciate it. And – It is a natural human and I think very good instinct to feel inspired to want to reciprocate when you're when you get a gesture like that from someone. And at the same time, it's it's not always possible or practical. And one of the the worst etiquette mistakes you can make is to 
let that that reality impact receiving that gift well. And if this tradition somehow continues where you're not able to participate in exactly the same way as other people, it can feel like that's an imbalance in the relationship, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. So there's a, a point of etiquette that's really worth bringing up early on that involves receiving gifts well, whether or not you're going to be able to give something of equal value in exchange. One other thing that comes up that I think can really help with that is by talking to someone ahead of time. As you acknowledged, Pooch, there's a tradition here that's been established, and it, it might be something that's really significant within the family, among the siblings or among the siblings and their parents, that this this gift exchange is a really important moment for this family in terms of how it functions to bring people together and that it's an expectation that people are aware of. And you can kind of sense that in the question that this is this is something that's happening. And to excuse yourself from it or to change the way you participate in a family tradition like that is oftentimes important. So it's really important to let people know so that they're not surprised by it and so that they understand what's happening. And when I think about what exactly I would say to my siblings or to my parents, I think that I want to start with with that awareness that I'm that I'm introducing something that's going to be a change for them. And I want to take into account their feelings, the ways that they participate in it. And I want to be sure that the way I talk about it really honors that. How am I doing, Pooch? How does the answer sound? Are we are we are we on the right track? Do you think here? Does it does it sound coherent? I mean, I'm talking a lot of etiquette points, but is there a human angle that I think that? But is there a human angle that might come into play here that that you're thinking about? Yeah, what I'm hearing is the practical. Um, well, one, I'm hearing receiving well is a task, and I think it kind of is because it. I can imagine it feeling awkward that someone's giving you this expensive gift. I mean, in fact, 16 expensive gifts or 14, whatever the math is, to coming your way and then not having those gifts in kind. I can imagine being nervous about that. But that's really great advice um, that Lizzie points to about accepting it with grace and just being really grateful. And the person who's gifting being able to appreciate the joy that you experience from the gift and that that being enough, that being the purpose, that being the intention. Um, so that's cool to, I think, to decouple the gift exchange as like a transaction, one person and then back to the other person and instead really be like an altruistic, I'm letting go. And I, I, the, the gift is in the giving as they say. So that's one part that I'm hearing. And then in terms of, uh, the practical, sense it sounds like you want to be talking to people on the phone so picking up the phone because it's a nuanced conversation and you're changing a tradition and that you want to do it not i'm assuming not like the week of christmas you want to do it a couple weeks a little bit advance it's funny you mentioned the particular date of the holiday also because another thought that had popped into my mind as i think about half measures and compromises I'm wondering if maybe it would be possible to excuse yourself from the birthday gift giving tradition, but maybe continue to participate in the annual the holiday giving or or maybe it's a reverse of that that you could excuse oh. yourself from one and do the other. But that might reduce it by half. And I, I had been thinking about reducing the birthday presents because I think for many adults, for precisely this reason, people stop giving so many presents, maybe outside of immediate family. In this particular case, it sounds like the siblings are still pretty connected in this way. Mm -hmm. But it's it's oftentimes something that as we reach adulthood, the number of birthday presents that we expect from friends and even extended family starts to go down. Um, so that might be an easier tradition to shift um, within the right. family. There might even be some really appreciative people once you start to raise this as a, a, a possibility. How do you say this? Do you have a script? for budgeting student we are definitely missing lizzie post the master of sample <laughs> scripts but i oftentimes remember her good advice to say the thing that you mean and in many ways i think that the sample script is really here in the question how do we tell the siblings we're unable to participate in this level of giving i'm calling up to have a discussion with you, but oh boy i'm already sounding way too formal but <laughs> having gotten through some some basic introductory conversation, you tell them clearly and candidly that you can't 
realistically participate in this level of giving. And discussions about money need to be candid and honest and open. It's not something you need to be ashamed about, but you can be really clear with people that this is something you've thought about and that you want to continue to participate. But this is the way that you're going to have to do it because you're working on a student budget at this point. And people are going to understand that. It sounds like this family's um, pretty closely connected and they probably also understand the kind of situation that you're operating in and are going to be understanding about the choices that you have to make. You know, I just thought of one more thing, and that is that depending on what your particular skills are, it could be that you have a little time, could be you're a, you know, love to doodle and make little funny drawings. And I wonder if there's a way to still participate in the gift giving in your own kind of unique um, offer, even it not being even the scaled down version you had been doing prior um, years ago, me and my sister did canned peaches for everybody. And it was a lot of work and it was pretty fun, but people appreciated it. And um, I'm just thinking about so many different ways to make that phone call, make that personal connection come through with a card, with peaches, with, I mean, with anything, you name it, um, hot sauces. <laughs> I had a, I had a client who, who did hot sauces for her whole family recently and they loved it. Budgeting student, I hope we helped to guide you a little bit and that this Christmas is graceful and so much fun and in harmony with all the love that you clearly have between you and your family. Everybody tells me to be more thoughtful. Well, I'd like to be more thoughtful. If I only knew what it meant. This next question we titled Seriously Celiac. Dear etiquette experts at the Emily Post Institute, I have celiac disease, which is very misunderstood. It is not a wheat allergy, as some assume, but rather an autoimmune disease where even the consumption of a couple crumbs of something containing gluten, which is a protein found in wheat, barley, and rye, causes my intestines to attack themselves. Needless to say, the effects are not pleasant. I can be really sick for days if I accidentally consume gluten to the point where I have had to take sick days. Oof. People with celiac disease have to be much more careful than people tend to assume because the amount of gluten that causes a reaction can be found in just a cracker crumb or two. On top of this, cross-contamination is hugely important. We essentially have to have entirely separate cookware from things that are used to cook gluten and cannot be thoroughly washed. This includes cutting boards, crumbs can hide in the knife grooves, wooden spoons, which are very porous, toasters for obvi obvious reasons, etc. Because of how seriously cross-contamination needs to be taken, my husband and I keep an entirely gluten-free household. However, occasionally I receive invitations to dinner parties or functions where food is served. It gets really tricky because most people do not actually understand how serious celiac disease is. And some people have told me things like, oh, don't worry. I know all about gluten-free. I was gluten-free for a year. Or my mom actually lost a bunch of weight on a gluten-free diet. So I have gluten-free pasta at home. The problem is that because gluten-free diets are so synonymous with the fad that many people have tried at some point, the general public has no idea how serious the cross-contamination is for people who actually have celiac disease. I frankly do not feel comfortable eating at someone else's house unless someone in their household has the disorder or they have a gluten-free kitchen for some other reason. Luckily for me, it's heritable, so this usually isn't a problem for my big family dinners and reunions. However, I have had friends become offended that I don't trust them to cook something that is ju not just gluten-free in the sense that it doesn't contain gluten, but also is prepared in a safe way. On top of that, many common ingredients that many people don't think about contain gluten, such as soy sauce, malt, or even normally safe ingredients bought in bulk from a section where cross-contamination has occurred. The problem is that unless someone has certain separate cooking equipment, there is a good chance they would be effectively poisoning me 
and I would, at the very least, spend the next 48 hours or so with a terrible stomach ache. The effects are just not worth it to me, and it's really bad for my health besides that. I know people mean well and are extending a generous offer, but celiac disease isn't like when someone is allergic to zucchini but will be fine as long as you don't cook any zucchini for dinner. Do you have any ideas or sample scripts for how to graciously but firmly decline an invitation to eat at someone's house when you know it won't be safe for you? I often feel like I'm hurting someone's feelings by declining, even as I explain cross-contamination. I'm always as polite as possible, but I think the message people sometimes are getting is that I'm using it as an excuse, pretending that it's more serious than it is, or that I'm just plain insulting them by implying they wouldn't cook a meal that was safe for me to eat. Sometimes I'm able to just suggest they come to my house for dinner or that we go to a restaurant I'm able to eat at instead. But other times, people seem genuinely excited to share their cooking with me, or it's a specific event that is being hosted at a specific place. Thank you for all that you do. I love your podcast and can't wait to read the much-teased book, Seriously Celiac. Seriously, Celiac, thank you so much for the question. And also, thank you so much for your enthusiasm about the coming book. I'm glad that Lizzie and my constant talking about it hasn't um, just sent everyone running for the hills at this point, but that there is some actual enthusiasm for it. That is that is really nice to hear. One thing that comes to mind right off the bat when I read or heard Pooja reading this question is that I – I'm just really glad that you wrote with such detail about what it is that you deal with as someone with celiacs in terms of the amount of care that it takes to really prepare food in a way that's safe. And ultimately, safety supersedes etiquette. It has to um, be the playing field that we play the etiquette game on and it it sets the rules and the boundaries that we operate within. And for you, those those boundaries are really defined and they're really clear. And that's important to know because that's going to determine everything else that follows. And as you point out in your question, there is a lot of confusion around this for people because that gluten-free diet was so popular and because it serves an entirely different purpose than a gluten or wheat-free diet serves for someone with celiacs. And that's a really important distinction to understand. We have talked about it on this show a number of times, and it's usually from the perspective of the person who's got a gluten-free diet who's talking to a host about their dietary restrictions. And one of the pieces of advice that we offer comes from that core principle of etiquette honesty, that it's really important to acknowledge when your dietary restriction is a preference or a choice versus something that's a real safety issue. And that line is something that's not always clear for people. And one of the jokes that we tell on this show often is there's allergic to cats and then there's allergic to cats. There are some people who a little cat dander or cat hair can cause an anaphylactic response where breathing really becomes difficult or you get hives. And for other people, it's an icky feeling and a, a sense that maybe they're getting kind of itchy because the space isn't clean. And they're really different things. And what you're describing are two really different things, a gluten-free diet and a diet that's for someone who's got celiac disease. Dan, I love that. I love that clarity of the fact that the um, it sounds like the problematic area in this communication is that it's really confusing for people when they hear gluten-free. And it sounds you you wrote it down here, seriously, celiac. I'm just looking back here. They think that you're using it as an excuse, pretending that it's more serious than it is, or that you're just insulting them by implying they wouldn't cook a meal that's safe for me. So either way, in those scenarios, you're already a loss, at a loss. And you know, you're really sounds like again, well-intended, trying to communicate. You want to attend. Let's figure out how you come to my house. We do a restaurant. You know, the last thing you want to do is send that. You're not a good cook. I don't think that you, I don't trust you. So I love that, Dan, you made that specificity of even giving an example. So if uh, I've had the situation before where I eat a, I ate two crumbs, no joke. You would think this is, but it's it's totally my reality, and it is tough. I ate two crumbs of bread from someone's kitchen, and I couldn't go to work for like two days afterwards. I was in pain, 
it's a hard, it's a hard situation for me. So I want to put that out there as I'm talking to you about this awesome invitation you've given me. I want to connect with you, but I have this situation. It is, it's celiacs, you know, it's not gluten uh, intolerance or gluten-free, di- uh, gluten-free diet, but it's a real disease that I, you know, kind of work around pretty much all the time. So how can we connect? How can we still hang out? And um, I, I want to see you. I want to see your family, your kids, but I got to work around this, this, my celiacs. So yeah, let's, let's communicate. Let's figure this out planning wise. I love that you're trying to figure this out because it sounds like this comes up all the time for you. Sharing food together is one of the most important social activities we participate in. And I think you're right, Pooch, that it's something that is really important. It's important in a lot of relationships. And you've already, in in your sample script, opened up for more possibility around that connection than than I was thinking of in a really reductionary, sort of reduced version of that sample script. And I... I like the way you're approaching it. The The one place where I heard a little bit of a hang-up, and it's one thing I always notice in myself when I'm testing out a sample script, Lizzie and I will often start with one, and I'll get halfway Ooh. through it and say, boy, this really isn't <laughs> going to work. There's no way to do this well. You got up to the point where it was the, the thing that was going to be the, the, the block. I, I felt like the sample script was working really well to – in a much more conversational approach. All right, laid out. Tell me exactly what I no, the, the, what, the, the, what you would the, change. I think the tone was right. The discussion of the way celiac disease functions was all really good. The point that I really hinged on is the thing that you're saying no to, because there might be ways that you can eat together, ways to accept invitations, but it's food prepared in kitchens that aren't set up to produce food in a very specific right. way. And I think you could really focus on that detail yeah. as the the point of the explanation that's significant because it's not about someone's willingness to work hard or the menu that they put together or the food that they buy. Right. But the reality that without experience cleaning a kitchen in a certain way and a kitchen maybe even that has certain kinds of surfaces that are cleanable in certain ways, that it's just not possible. So, yeah. so that becomes the parameter. And yeah. when you're – accepting or declining, you can just start from that place. If this person has experience preparing food in a certain way in a kitchen that can do it, then I have the option of saying yes. And if not, I'm going to just be saying no and we're going to work around that detail. But I think that's the specific piece of information that I was looking for as the thing that you're declining ultimately because you're – as you say, you're not declining the spirit of the invitation, the desire to share food together, the – the desire for someone to host you, you might be able to say yes to invitations that involve events where you want to participate, but you just won't be eating the food. And I liked the way you set up your whole sample script because I think it would allow for you to negotiate things that aren't usually negotiated. Like I would love to come to your dinner party, but maybe I won't be eating anything at the dinner party. And that's that's trickier to negotiate etiquette wise, but I think the way you set it up, it becomes a possibility when you also really identify what it is you can say yes and no to. That makes so much sense, Dan. That is the specific detail. It's that kitchen being um, celiac disease friendly or um, yeah, maybe celiac friendly kitchen. Pooch, I also have to offer up just my version of the sample script. It was much shorter because I was imagining the the specific uh, response to an invitation. And I was thinking that from a guest perspective, you've just got to RSVP. You've got to respond. And it's okay to say no. So to me, my sample decline sounded like, thank you so much for the invitation. I regretfully have to decline, but hope that we can connect in the near future. Very simple, very clean if you don't want to get into all of your reasonings, but definitely gives you the opportunity to reply to that invitation, which is so important. Seriously, celiac, this makes sense. You're calling yourself seriously celiac. I love that you're taking this seriously because it's safety and safety trumps etiquette. And I hope with our sample script and a little bit of confidence from us that you will be able to still connect and also... um, not offend people and not have a a stomach ache for 40 hours because that does not sound like the answer best of luck there's something we all enjoy about staying for dinner have you ever thought why it's because eating with others is fun people like to come together at meal times 
enjoy each other's company while they're enjoying good food. Our next question is titled, Is Best Regards Really Best? Hello, I enjoy listening to your podcast as I work and have often shared many topics with coworkers over lunch. A question has come up concerning the use of the term best regards in professional emails. I have always thought that sending someone regards implies that you are sending them well wishes and letting them know that you are thinking of them. This seems disingenuous for communication between relative strangers, but is so common that I now feel as though the sentiment has been sterilized. It seems as though it is now very formal and is one of those phrases we use without thinking. That brings me to its use among those with whom we are friends and are closely acquainted with. A friend of mine has used the term, give my regards to mother, family, husband, etc., both in face-to-face interactions and in writing. Because of my association with this term in a formal business context, it feels cold and dismissive when coming from a friend. In a social context, it can almost feel like a soft, bless your heart. I'm from Virginia, by the way. Usually, one would ask, oh, how is your family? Please tell so-and-so hello. Am I correct in assuming that this person is establishing a new boundary and now considers me more of an acquaintance than a friend? For context, we grew up together. Our families are close, and we are both now married with our own families and see each other during holidays. My husband and I sent a wedding gift and didn't receive a thank you, and Christmas cards and greetings have gone unacknowledged. Perhaps the dynamic has changed for him. My instinct says to leave it alone and to stop trying to reach out. Thoughts? And is there an alternative to the use of best regards both formally and in more familiar communications? Best regards, truly, Ashley. Ashley, I think this is a great, subtle question you're asking. Sounds like in two fronts, in the formal business sense and then also in personal communication I think it's a great question you ask at the end. Is there an alternative word or words for best regards in the business sense? Because I think that you're onto something there that the meaning of the words best regards extends past what most people intend in their communication in the work setting. Absolutely. Do you have any initial thoughts, Dan, as to what might be the alternative business phrase you would use at the end of an email? I think about this more often than a person should be allowed to think about this. <laughs> and the 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 hierarchy, sort of the formal closing hierarchy, starts with sincerely. And if you think about it, sincerely probably rings even more formal in some ways than best regards. And it's mm-hmm. it's interesting to be thinking of best regards as a very formal option because it's a step down from that sincerely and was – sort of, I think, struck upon as a as an alternative to sincerely when people were feeling about sincerely the way we might now be feeling about best regards. I wonder if we're generally moving towards informality. Is that the case in business communication? Absolutely. And if we were to continue to descend down the scale of formality for closings, probably mm-hmm. below best regards comes all the best. And it really goes probably sincerely regards, best regards all the best, best, if I was sort of giving my standard, let's stair-step down through formal closings. And there's no question that in in many ways, sincerely really means from me truly. But yet, in its formal context, it doesn't have that, that same feeling of warmth that it does in other in other situations when you use it at the end of a thank you note and it's written in your own hand. I think it might start right. to evoke that a little more. But in a business sense, you're like, dude, I don't know you. Sincerely sounds like way beyond where we are right now. Absolutely. And, and yeah. I think you appropriately call it a really subtle question because it, Ashley's really looking at the subtleties there. She's looking at the subtleties in the ways formality informs our communication. So – I would just say almost sort of a gold star in terms of the way you and your colleagues are thinking about it. And and I would think about that scale of formality as some different options that you could notch up a little more formal with sincerely, but you could also notch it down a little bit with an all the best or best. And I also think it works in in the context and in the way that Ashley's talking about using it professionally. 
I'm really fascinated in the way that transitions into the social world. Absolutely. Because it's taken on that kind of context in a world of email communication that hearing it from a friend raises this question in your mind. Are they trying to introduce some distance in this relationship? It's hard to tell for me because I give my regards to, I've heard that as well socially, and I totally get it sounds more formal. And for me, it doesn't ring true to, okay, this guarantees me that the person is uh, wanting to distance themselves. I hear what you're saying, Ashley. You've also got these other um, kind of variables happening that you sent the wedding gift. You didn't receive the thank you. I, I wonder, I mean, again, that could be they didn't send anybody thank yous. They're logged up and with other to-dos and the thank you cards are sitting in the basement. Or maybe it is something. I don't know. I wouldn't. That wouldn't be a, a red flag for me. Christmas cards and greetings have gone unacknowledged. I wonder if they're maybe embarrassed that they didn't send Christmas cards or, or rather thank you cards. And so they don't want to bring up, oh, thank you so much for that gift because they may feel awkward about it. I'm giving these these friends of yours some latitude because I don't know. And none of these actions seem like they're red flags that, OK, this means that they aren't interested in being my friends. They They still spend time with you, it sounds like, annually. And their behavior hasn't changed. They've kind of been consistent in their not sending of thank you cards. I wonder, so some people just don't do thank you cards. Or um, maybe like the last couple of questions ago, maybe they feel awkward about not having also sent you thank you cards because that's just what they don't do. That's that they don't do it. And I also want to say it is interesting that your your instinct says leave it alone. Stop trying to reach out. I might ask my husband and kind of be like, what's your read on this? If, in case he knows, in case he's picked up on any other social cues in there. But for the moment, I would just still reach out the way that I felt comfortable to, whether that meant Christmas cards and greetings, and still make plans with them. That's my kind of read. Dan, would you add anything to that or change anything altogether? Pooj, I agree. I I wouldn't necessarily interpret this as someone trying to send you a message. As I was reading it, was thinking about how at times in my life I've played with using more formal language myself. And I've always thought that I could imbue it with enough warmth and humanity that it wouldn't sound off-putting or distant. And I would give the same sort of uh, latitude to someone who was who was trying out something like that with me socially. When you combine it with some of those other etiquette infractions, I think that one thing that's really interesting to me is the way that starts to create an impression for someone that maybe these people aren't as invested in the relationship or want to introduce some distance into it. And like you, I think there are lots of explanations that aren't from that don't come from that place that aren't motivated by that sort of thinking. And at the same time, that impression is created. And I think that you're really wise and emotionally coherent to say, try not to let that impression impact where you're coming from. If you feel good sending those Christmas cards, send those Christmas cards. If your instinct is to reach out and touch base when you're home visiting or you're both around, I think that you should continue to go for that. Ashley, thank you for a really thoughtful question. Please give our best to your coworkers. I hope that the podcast continues to be good fodder for that lunch table discussion. And I also hope that your relationship is able to continue with this person and that you're able to find a way to communicate with them that makes sense to both of you. Our next question is titled A Budget, Bed, and Breakfast. Our listener writes, Hi, Awesome Etiquette team. I will be visiting a friend out of state soon who I haven't seen in some time. She has been kind enough to offer her bed to me and my son while she sleeps on the couch. I am saving a lot of money by not staying in a hotel and quite frankly would not be able to afford the, this vacation if I had to get a hotel. So my question is, what is an adequate way to repay a host who gives up their bed? A dinner? A few dinners? I don't want her to feel like we've invaded her space without properly repaying her the best we can. Thanks, Lillian. Oh, Lillian, what a great question and what a great friend. That's just yeah. awesome. It is absolutely not necessary for a host to give up their own bed almost ever. And yet sometimes it really does make sense. And when a host does it, it 
can really make a visit. And I think that's a really, really kind gesture. And it's really kind of you to recognize um, that, that your host is doing that for you and for to inspire you to want to do a little bit more for them. I love how friendly and uh, generous your host is, this friend of yours, and that you guys get to connect after not seeing each other uh, after some time. I'm imagining with the pandemic, there are so many people that are coming together. I know myself, I just stayed at a friend's recently and, you know, that's the whole dance is how do I be a good guest? So I'm hearing that, Lillian, from you. It sounds like it's important. And some ideas that come to mind are offering her maybe a little gift from your hometown, something unique and special. Another idea is take her out to dinner. I've even had um, friends pay for groceries. I thought that was really practical and easy when they were staying at my house. And I'm imagining if you guys go do something for the day, cover your friend for that event, even if it's maybe a little more that could show that could show them how much you care. And definitely when you're heading out the door, give the verbal thank you. If you're a hugger, do the hug. And afterwards, send uh, a written thank you note because that really lands and the person has something to hold on to and remember that that great visit. Absolutely. That is some house guest 101, one, two, three. Show up with something in hand. Such good advice to think of that as to bring a little something from where you're coming from doing a dinner or something over the course of the trip itself and then that follow-up note i love the way you've mapped this out pooch one two three before during after those are the standard marks to hit and really they work to deliver that thanks that lillian's really wanting to deliver here awesome dan that's such a succinct way of putting that together and an easy way to remember one two three okay Best House Guest 101. Lillian, we hope we've given you some some good tools to feel confident and have a wonderful trip. How do you go about being thoughtful? What do you do? Every time I try, I only make things worse. Is there some particular method of being thoughtful that works every time? Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just remember, use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. If you love Awesome Etiquette, consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com backs. Oops. Consider. If you love Awesome Etiquette, consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash Awesome Etiquette. You'll get an ads free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, you'll feel great knowing that you that you help to keep Awesome Etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already sustaining members, thank you for your support. It's time for our feedback segment, where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today, we have feedback from Lisa on a question in episode 342 about feeling down when seeing others accepting job offers and not yet having one of your own. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I wanted to share an idea with Anonymous a law student who is struggling with job searching and finds social media posts from her peers about their job searching success to be demoralizing. I'm a seasoned attorney. I remember how difficult it is to find jobs in the legal field as a law student or new attorney. My suggestion is to turn these posts into a networking opportunity because networking is everything in the legal field. When you see a post about a peer's new job write a heartfelt note or email of congratulations to that person. You can conclude your note with a mention that you are still searching and would appreciate if your peer could let you know about any job opportunities they learn about. 
This contact could end up helping you find a position, but even if it doesn't, it's always good to spread positivity in the world, which is sure to come back to you. Best of luck, and I hope you enjoy the legal field as much as I have. Lisa. Lisa, thank you so much for the feedback. You're reminding me of one of my favorite pieces of etiquette advice, which is to send thank you notes when you don't get a job that you've interviewed for. It really is remarkable how much can come from being supportive of other people through our own ups and downs. And that oftentimes that's where we make those connections that end up being so, so, so important to us. Thank you for the feedback. Thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or a text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment, where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going back to Etiquette Kindergarten with the reading from Emily Post's 1922 edition of Etiquette. As Lizzie Post and I were writing the 20th edition of Emily Post Etiquette, we spent so much time rewriting the section that described how to eat with a knife and fork. And I thought it might be fun to return to what Emily Post called Etiquette Kindergarten. This is how she tackled the topic in an appendix to her 1922 edition of Etiquette. The section on the proper use of the fork begins. As soon, therefore, as his hand is dexterous enough, the child must be taught to hold his fork, no longer gripped baby fashion in his fist, but much as a pencil is held in writing. Only the fingers are placed nearer the top than the point. The thumb and the two first fingers are closed around the handle, two-thirds of the way up the shank, and the food is taken up shovel-wise on the turned-up prongs. At first, his little fingers will hold his fork stiffly, but as he grows older, his fingers will become more flexible, just as they will in holding his pencil. If he finds it hard work to shovel his food, he can, for a while, continue to use his nursery pusher. By and by, the pusher is changed for a small piece of bread, which is held in his left hand and between thumb and first two fingers, and against which the fork shovels up such elusive articles as corn, peas, poached egg, etc. The spoon. In using the spoon, he holds it in his right hand, like the fork. In eating cereal or dessert, he may be allowed to dip the bowl of the spoon toward him and eat from the end. But in eating soup, he must dip his spoon away from him, turning the outer rim of the bowl down as he does so. Fill the bowl not more than three-quarters full and sip it, without noise, out of the side, not the end of the bowl. The reason why the bowl must not be filled full is because it is impossible to lift a brimming spoonful of liquid to his mouth without spilling some, or in the case of porridge, without filling his mouth too full. While still very young, he may be taught never to leave the spoon in a cup while drinking out of it, but after stirring the cocoa or whatever it is to lay the spoon in the saucer. A very ugly table habit, which seems to be an impulse among all children, is to pile up a great quantity of food on a fork and then lick or bite it off piecemeal. This must on no account be permitted. It is perfectly correct, however, to take a little at a time of hot liquid from a spoon. In taking any liquid, either from a spoon or drinking vessel, no noise must ever be made. This was the part that I was particularly interested in. The fork and knife together. In being taught to use his knife, the child should at first cut only something very easy, such as a slice of chicken. He should not attempt anything with bones or gristle or anything that is tough. In his left hand is put his fork with the prongs downward, held near the top of the handle. His index finger is placed on the shank so that it points to the prongs and is supported at the side by his thumb. His other fingers close underneath and hold the handle tight. He must never be allowed to hold his fork child fashion, perpendicularly clutched in the clenched fist, and to saw across the food at its base with his knife. We finish with the knife. The knife is held in his right hand exactly as the fork is held in his left, firmly and at the end of the handle, with the index finger pointed down the back of the blade. 
In cutting, he should learn not to scrape the back of the prongs with the cutting edge of the knife. Having cut off a mouthful, he thrusts the fork through it, with prongs pointed downward, and conveys it to his mouth with his left hand. He must learn to cut off and eat one mouthful at a time. Ooh, that is speaking of one mouthful. That is a mouthful to be able to communicate that level of specificity about our hands using tools to eat. That it, you must have felt some kind of um, kinship with with Emily. Oh my goodness, you and Lizzie. <laughs> at, at, at one point, Lizzie discovered a word. I think it was pericule. That describes what? the part of the hand where the thumb and the finger meet, and there's that sort of meaty pad oh, totally. on the, the back of the hand. There's a name for it, and <laughs> we needed to know it. <laughs> That's wild. Thank you so much for bearing with me through a return to Etiquette Kindergarten. I certainly enjoy returning to the 22 edition of Etiquette, particularly having just gotten this latest edition completed. Well, that's my first trip through Etiquette Kindergarten, and I've learned a new word. Thank you for the reading. Up until this minute, Betty has been confident that a person should butter his vegetables with his knife. But now that Betty sees Floyd buttering his with his fork, she isn't certain. She wishes she did know definitely. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we have a salute from Janet. Hello! I would like to send an etiquette salute out for my landlord. This year has been very trying for me financially. I made a big move, had to take out some loans, and now I have to pay some unexpected medical bills, and there are more coming. Most landlords want all of your rent money at the start of the month but mine has been kind enough to understand that it is difficult for me to budget that way. After I communicated my situation, he was kind enough to let me split my payment in half and pay twice a month. This helps me pay my other bills on time, and I really appreciate his generosity. Cheers. Oh, cheers, and thank you for the salute. Oftentimes we hear about little things that make a big difference in people's lives, and this sounds like a big thing that is really making a difference for you. And it's good to hear that there are people out there taking care of each other. Thank you so much for this salute. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something and everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, and on social media. You can send us questions, feedback, or your next salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting patreon.com forward slash awesomeetiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review. It helps our show ranking, which helps more people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dow. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. And Bridget.